Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Code and the Code Encoders Who Code It. I'm your host, Drew Bragg, and I'm joined today by Thomas Carr. Thomas, for anyone who hasn't met you yet, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Like I said, my name is Thomas Carr. I'm a full stack developer currently living in Knoxville, Tennessee, but had been living in Asheville, North Carolina for several years. That's where my software developer career really started. Currently, I work for a global IT consulting firm called CGI, but more specifically, I work in the federal IT consulting arm of the company, working on a product called Secure Data Fabric, which I try to explain to people is a cross-domain data sharing platform, but maybe an ambiguous name for a slightly ambiguous product that we can mold and shape as our team sees fit. Cool. Well, we're definitely going to get into that because I'm going to ask you three questions. I'm going to ask you what you're working on. Can be professional. Of course, being federal, I'm sure there's some things you can't really talk about. So either we'll talk about them at a high level. We can talk about stuff that you're working on in for personal projects. And then I'm going to ask you what kind of blockers you have. Again, personal or work related. And if you don't have a current blocker, a recent blocker and how you went about solving it is also a great way to answer that. And then for the last question, I'm going to ask you to share something cool, new, or interesting that you've learned or discovered or even built. doesn't have to be coding related, but it absolutely can be. So what are you working on? Well, my role at CJ Federal, I said before we're working on a product, but really my role and my team's role is split between two different priorities. One is building this baseline product for the company called Secure Data Fabric. But the other half of our role looks something like a what we call like a emerging technologies consultant. The sort of underlying department I work in is called the emerging technologies practice. So we do essentially research and development for the company, working with new technologies. My product, we deal with a lot of these sort of Web3 kinds of concepts, things like blockchains and cryptocurrencies and data meshes and things like that. So our role involves both taking some of those tools and trying to figure out where they make sense for this product, but also to teach and enable the people in our company who are working directly with certain customer segments and help them go after new business by leveraging some of our knowledge and expertise in some of those emerging technologies. And Web3 is sort of like a buzzword. I mean, from my understanding, at least, it doesn't seem to actually mean anything. It's more of like the umbrella where we stick newer technologies that haven't been wholly adopted yet. So when you say like, hey, we kind of work with Web3 and you gave the example of blockchain or cryptocurrency, like how does that get defined at where you work? What would you consider an emerging enough technology to fall into the Web3 umbrella and for you guys to be tinkering with it? So somewhat shared definition for what constitutes Web3 or the parts of that term that we even care to define is really technologies and protocols that enable decentralization of what is typically centralized software systems and business systems. And also distributed data governance. That's a lot of what our product aims to do is to enable government agencies to better control their data and share data without the need for a sort of nationalized 
data governance infrastructure, which is really something that we're ever going to have in the US. And that's perfectly fine. So we're trying to find ways to solve that with some of these Web3 things. Now, there are those who in the more like commercial SaaS space that throw the term Web3 on the website. And usually what they mean is that they're doing something with Ethereum specifically, Ethereum being sort of like a core technology and blockchain platform that has a lot of things tied to it. And that's where you get a lot of these current cryptocurrency projects. We're less interested in any specific blockchain. We try and be agnostic about the tools and technologies that we use and focus much more specifically on identifying and solving very specific problems. Yeah, because I feel like someone says Web3, I'm like, I don't know what you mean. Don't know what you're referring to, what anyone else is referring to. So that's a good explanation of what kind of falls into the umbrella and then also how you all approach it. Because you gave a talk at Blue Ridge Ruby that kind of had that Web3 feel to it. And to be frank, I went into it like, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a buzzword laden, just like, here's why you should buy my cryptocurrency. (laughs) And that's not what it was at all. It was very much about privacy and being able to control what data you share. And I found that bit refreshing and also pretty fascinating about how these technologies that were kind of in a way some of us are ignoring because of the way they've become just buzzwords or people have abused them for schemes or whatever. But there is a real value to some of this technology and you guys seem to be doing pretty cool stuff with it. So can you give a since I don't know if the videos will be out by the time this recording goes out, can you give like a quick summary of what you talked about at Blue Ridge? Once the videos are out, I'll link it, obviously. And then we can talk a little bit more about the specifics of what you guys are doing. So my original proposal and pitch to Jeremy and Blue Ridge Ruby team was to talk about what I'm calling digital identity. That is certainly like a big piece that people are talking about in the Web3 community, but also outside of the Web3 community, there are some overlaps. But my talk was about some new standards and specifications for how to build web applications and establish a layer of what I call digital trust using these specifications called verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers. And there's some other tangential standards as well. One that I didn't talk about at the conference, but I think it's very related is called C2PA, which stands for the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, very similar to the verifiable credentials. If anyone is following along with, if you're in the design world and you're following along with Adobe and Figma and their new product releases, they just put out a big thing called content credentials using very similar standards for digital identity, but applying it to images and other types of content. So ultimately, I wanted to bring to the attention to the Ruby community who I think are very pragmatic developers. It's one of the things that I really love about Ruby and Ruby developers and working on teams that build on Ruby is they tend to be really pragmatic about the problems that they solve and trying to have that sort of business-driven development, behavior-driven development, and only write enough code to solve the problem, which I think is amazing. But I do think that sometimes we don't like to sit out at the edge of some of these technologies because we're worried about hype and I think that's super fair. And that's the beauty of my current roles. 
I'm supposed to play with some of these emerging technologies. And it's a lot of fun for me. And I get to come back to the Ruby community and say, hey, here are some things that are actually applicable to building web apps that are going to become global standards. They very well may become natively part of the browser APIs. It wouldn't surprise me if they did in the next couple of years. So to your point earlier, I did consider having a slide at the beginning that was like proposal for a Thomas coin of some sort with just like my name and like my me giving like a thumbs up and <laughs> I could go do that. There are some interesting applications to some of these, what we call DeFi or decentralized finance applications and protocols, but I've yet to see one that's really that compelling. And anyone that's not knee deep in the technology, I highly recommend to just ignore pretty much right. everything in the DeFi space because it's so noisy. There's so much hype and lots of people with a lot of money invested who have something to gain by you entering some of these crypto schemes. So I recommend avoiding those. Yeah, but that's actually a really cool and potentially undervalued position that you're in, that you're essentially your job is to validate all of the hype that comes out of this Web3 space and say, yeah, you can ignore this bit. This bit isn't mature enough yet. We don't actually know where this is going, but this thing is gaining traction. This thing has real application value and you're going to start seeing it soon. So Rubyists, you want to start paying attention to this bit. I think that helps a lot because you're right. There is so much noise. We experience it with AI. AI is this magical thing that research universities used and maybe we would eventually have to felt like overnight, all of a sudden, everyone and their mother is using chat GPT and building applications that have AI baked in because they're just making API calls to this AI. And I was actually at a meetup last night in Philadelphia in person, which was great. Love to see it coming back. And there was someone doing one of their lightning talks on AI, and he actually said something similar of, hey, you can probably, unless you are an AI researcher or doing this type of work, if your business is toying with the idea of, he was talking about fine-tuning large language models, but he's like, if you guys are toying with the idea, don't. Like, don't do it yet. It's changing so fast. There's so much going on every day. Someone comes out with some new way that improves it or changes the approach. It's like, Unless you're, it's business critical for you, I recommend waiting. Don't start tuning large language models. You're just, it's a money pit right now, which is great advice, but just made me kind of want to tinker more. So I feel like you just sort of said the same thing with a lot of the Web3 stuff is some of it is moving too quick and there's too much noise and it's hard to sift through. But then you have this digital identity, which has space in the Web3 arena that actually is gaining traction. So when you're talking about digital identity, we're going past email and password for logging in. We're talking about you as a person that exists in a way on the internet and what that means. So can you talk about a little bit why that's going to become a standard and what's going on there? And your point about AI, I think is really important. And Part of the reason why there is a lot more attention being given to digital identity is because of sort of the haphazard way people are building AI products. And we're not thinking about how that changes the way that we establish trust on the web. 
how do I know what we're dealing with when we're dealing with some sort of software application on the web? And I gave a more specific talk internally to CGI Federal about the intersection of digital identity and AI, which I barely touched on in the conference talk at Blue Ridge Ruby. But when I try and frame digital identity for people who haven't really thought about it, it's not that different from our physical identity, the unique things that make us us in the world. And identity is not just for people. We have identities and identifiers for lots of things, for our devices, for our organizations and teams. But often the first thing we think about with digital identity is like the things that go on your GitHub profile or your Facebook profile, right? Your social identifiers that you give out your name, where you live, where you work, maybe work history for thinking about something like LinkedIn. And all that usually is like a form upload. You log into some social application, you provide some sort of unique identifier that you prove that you know, which is often your email or username and a password, maybe some MFA, right? You go in and then you have an authenticated session and then you go and give them some data about yourself for whatever reason. Maybe it's for the purpose of sharing with other people. Maybe it's for the purpose of using some sort of utility application, depending on what you're using. And then the sort of meta, the next level up from that is the identities of groups of people or organizational identities, who you are at work, who you are in teams. Sometimes that might be a business, but it could be something a little bit more vague, just a group of people loosely working on a project like an open source community, for instance. And then you've got a couple of categories that I think are really important of digital workers, which is various levels of software systems doing things on the internet on behalf of either a person or a business. So like we typically thought of as like software bots doing stuff whenever you would call Comcast or some other business and interact with some automated procedure. And maybe they asked some questions and they had a complex decision tree of some sort, but the inputs are predefined essentially. And then On the next level is generative AI types of chatbots and potentially autonomous bots doing things on the internet. And all of these things have different ways to prove their identity, potentially, in the physical world. We as people have lots of physical proofs. I mean, we have unique identifiers that are like how we look, potentially, but also government-issued identities like driver's licenses and passports. And then organizations have things like tax identifiers. Software systems have IP addresses and potentially lots of other ways to identify software systems. Though often for commercial products or cloud products, you're placing a lot of trust based on whatever brand you're dealing with. So in the case of a product like LinkedIn or Google, you're making some assumptions because it's coming from the google.com domain. You trust that software. You're not going and looking at the IP addresses usually. And then generative AI processes, that starts to look a lot more complex. Generative AI, if you're interacting, let's say, with a chatbot that is maybe coming to your web application and trying to interact with it, how is it going to identify itself if you were to ask it? Are you a robot? Are you a person? There's some sort of fundamental sci-fi kinds of scenarios we can think through, but I don't think they're that crazy and we're probably not that far off from these sorts of interactions happening. And so those of us working in the digital identity space aim to do is to use some of these specifications and tools to add that identity layer to the internet. 
internet doesn't give you anything other than TCP over IP doesn't give you anything other than here's an address for my computer, here's an address for some other computer, and here's how we send data back and forth. We've added some like layers of abstractions to add identifiers to like HTTP headers. We put in an API key and a session cookie, and that's sort of how we identify ourselves. But these new protocols aim to add new ways to sort of make claims about yourself, verifiable claims about yourself on the internet and prove, hey, I am Thomas Carr using your system and I own the slug HTCar3 on your service. And here's the data that I have put into your system, the content that I've created, my blog posts, whatever it is, all these ways that you could potentially own your data and prove that you own it and you give permission to some service to use it, verify it, build some business logic off of it. And how does privacy work into that kind of stuff? If we're talking about this is me and this is all the data, how do we get into, I don't want you to know this. I am okay with this service or this application knowing that I have this Twitter or that LinkedIn account, but I don't want this other service knowing that. How does that get worked into the concept of digital identity? Yeah, privacy is definitely a big part of the conversation. It's not the only one in enterprise settings where I spend most of my time. The privacy question is less of a concern. It's not of no concern, but certainly I'm thinking personally in some of my open source work about what's called self-sovereign identity, which is gets to the other side of digital identity which is being able to, as a consumer on the internet, own your own data and control who gets to use it and who gets to see it and when. So that's what some of these protocols also enable. As an example, I could have a sort of data vault, some cloud storage that I could store my blog posts. If we're going the generic Rails example, I've got a blog post or tweets. I have my set of tweets and there's some standard data format, maybe some JSON, and I can go and store it in my own cloud service. And I can have a unique identifier for that data. And I have essentially some proofs that I own it. And ultimately, we're using asymmetric keys. Anyone who's done stuff with like PGP keys, all these sorts of systems that use public and private keys. A lot of this is built on that. So I would have a private key that I hold or some cloud service holds for me. And I go and make signatures on the internet to prove that I own things. I give permission to some cloud service to go and access it. I could determine they can access it for a certain period of time. So there are some of these more, what I call Web3 native products, which is like sort of purely built on some Ethereum blockchain that are very open. Some people who more in the space might have seen something called Noster, N-O-S-T-R, as like a Twitter killer. This is an open protocol where you basically have a server running, maybe in the cloud, maybe in your house, and you basically are writing something like tweets on your server, and you basically register your server to the network, and it's sort of open and discoverable, and you give permission using public and private keys for other users to go and ingest your data and they can see it, and there's no centralized repository of that data. It's essentially how a lot of these products work. There's a separate specification that's been built by Tim Berners-Lee. We all know who Tim Berners-Lee is, probably. Yeah. And 
he, for about a decade, has been promoting some of these Web3 ideas. He hates the Web3 blockchain stuff. He's very anti that. And I do understand where he's coming from in his skepticism of how useful blockchains might be for consumer applications. So he's built a specification called Solid, and it's a specification just for personalized data vaults. And he's built a commercial company called Interrupt to basically commercialize server software to meet that specification and enable you as a consumer to go and hold your own data and be able to choose who gets access to it. And they've done some really cool implementations with some European governments. I think it's still a question of what that looks like in the US where we're never going to have a sort of nationalized data registry vault, but it'd be cooler if we did. One thing I guess I don't quite fully wrap my head around it, probably because I overthink everything, mm-hmm. but like, okay, so I have my data, but how do I have that? Like, how are permissions granted to X, Y, or Z company application, whatever, to access this data? that I have. If I log into whatever and I use my Google SSO to log in, so I click my Google account and as long as I'm logged into Google, all of this, and sometimes it'll ask me, hey, they're asking to share your address or your birthday or whatever, check these boxes to declare what you share, but I need Google to already have all of that information in order to utilize that SSO and grant those permissions. So with this next iteration of all of it, is it still going to be like a company like Google has to have all of my information in order for me to utilize this? Or how is that going to work? Who's going to own me, I guess, is the question. We're probably never going to get away in the US from commercial entities managing our data for us. And I think the IDP, any provider example, is a good one. And there's a lot of work being done in the Open ID community alongside the verifiable credentials work to allow for what they're calling, I think it's called Open ID self issued or Open ID verifiable credentials. And essentially, with Open ID, if you have an Open ID service, you have to go and register it. You have to go and like register your authentication service. And that's how the discoverability works. And this essentially enables you to sort of at runtime, go and say, hey, I have my own identity service that I'm running. I'm running a fully compliant open ID service that's going to be issuing stuff about me using the verifiable credential standard. Like it generates like JWTs, just like everything else. Mm. But under the hood, it's using this open specification. And eventually there's a lot of systems that are going to natively know how to read verifiable credentials, which is essentially like a piece of JSON that has a little digital signature using public and private keys. It's sort of a very simplistic way of thinking how authentication systems are going to use it. So that is one way in which this standard helps break apart those centralizing players in identity provisioning, like your SSOs from Google and Facebook, where it works for consumers. There's a lot of simplicity there. It's button click. We all have Google accounts. and we all, Many of us already have Facebook accounts. But every time you do that, they're seeing everything, every right. website that you're accessing. I don't know if you will generally recognize that Google and Facebook are purposefully watching every time that you go and sign in with something and they're able to see all those like access points. It's a little bit of an interesting conundrum of like someone else is always going to own our data. Even yeah. if we get to the point where we can be a little more granular about what company A or B 
can access out of that data, there is always, unless you're running your own service in your basement, which comes with a whole new set of challenges of like... Yeah, and this is what generally what separates me from a lot of the Web3 zealots is like mm. there is some dream of an idyllic society where everyone is running home server. It's like, it's the same thing as people who don't want to use banks and they just want to bury money in the backyard. A similar idea where you have a home server, you're running your own sort of security infrastructure and you're hosting all of your data on the internet forever and you're managing a bunch of public and private keys to go and enable automation on your behalf on the internet and on applications. And there is some interesting stuff happening there as well. It's called DW. The people over at Block, what is now Block, formerly Square, their new initiative called TBD, which is sort of their crypto exchange, their new business line. They're building a platform for decentralized web apps, DWAs, which they're calling the next evolution of PWAs, where you could go and download a full application from someone and run it in your own server, basically. You'd imagine like a full like client-side JavaScript application and you go run it on your server and you're interacting with their software inside your own infrastructure, essentially. Bizarre idea. My framework is always like, are my parents going to be able to use this? Because I don't come from a computer science background. My main entrance to technology was managing my parents' IT network. That's and, a lot you know, of us, yeah. Helping them navigate password managers for the first time. Yeah. This is my framework for thinking about consumer applications. And if it doesn't work for them, I have a hard time imagining that it's really a good product. It's fun for people who are technologists and they can go and play with these things, but I want to build something that's useful for my parents. Yeah, that decentralized web app thing sounds an awful lot like cloning a repository and just running it off your own server. Maybe less CLI-based configuration and more button clicking, but that sounds like self-hosted GitHub almost. Yeah, hey, here's the GitHub repository. Clone it and run it on your own server and cool. Congrats, you have your own version. Yes, something like that. They want to add all this like almost like a decentralized app store, like auto discoverability Mm. of applications. But Git works really well and Git repositories work really well. And it's not really an issue for most people. Sure. Is that like almost the way that Mastodon kind of works? And I know that there's differences, but the federation part of Mastodon aside, but like Mastodon, if you're like, I'm DR Bragg at Ruby Social, Ruby Social is someone running their own instance that is granting me the ability to utilize their platform and then it goes out to the rest of the network, which is everybody running their own instance. And I could, if I wanted to, clone Mastodon, run my own instance, be like drbrag.dev as my instance of Mastodon. And then it just goes out to the rest of the network as I kind of set my permissions. Is that mm, closer? So under the hood, Mastodon is using an open standard called ActivityPub. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's what sort of enables the federated. I think it's perfectly fine to call that decentralized for my definition of decentralized applications. There's some in, in Web3 space who would say, no, that's not decentralized enough. But I think Mastodon is a great example of technology that enables decentralization of centralizing actors and allows you to run your, if you want, run something that looks like Twitter and someone else is managing your data, but 
you could go and move to another service if you wanted to. And each service could employ its own standards for algorithms, for sharing, data sharing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think Mastodon is a great example and closely aligns with the standards for verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers. So it almost, I don't mean this to sound negative, but uh, failing to come up with a better way of saying it, but like it almost feels like a step backwards, not a bad step backwards, but it feels like we're going back to the way the web was before companies took over, where if you wanted to put something out on the internet, you had a website and you wrote something, you posted it and you shared that URL. That was your data. I mean, if we go way far back, everybody, if you wanted to have shit on the internet, you had your own server and things changed a lot. And now it's like some people don't exist on the internet unless it's through their Facebook account. But realistically, especially with a lot of this decentralized stuff is it's you are owning your own data in the way that you're sort of just we're making it easier and easier for people to host their own self on the internet rather than, hey, Google, hey, Facebook, whatever social media platform becomes the new hot thing. Like, I'm going to host all of my stuff with you. We're getting back to the internet as it was originally, which was just a network of people connecting through the web. I think that's exactly true. And if you go and watch the Tim Berners-Lee TED Talk from like, it's like almost 10 years old at this point, he made the exact same point. He says, mm-hmm. we, we have a problem. Of basically, the way that data is being aggregated on the internet and the way that infrastructure is unifying and centralizing on the internet. And it was not part of my original vision for how right. people should be able to share data on the internet. So... I think that's exactly true. And I also think that the web, as it is now, works pretty well. There are some issues, but my goal is just to get web app developers, specifically <laughs> my friends in the Ruby space, to just be aware that there are some cool things happening and they have direct implications for the web apps you're already building. And the tooling is pretty bad. That's Part of what I'm trying to do slowly but surely is build some open source tools that make it easy just to pull it in, bundle add, gem install to your Ruby apps. And you could go and start playing around with some of these new specifications. But I also want to get other people interested and bring more of a community effort to building some of these things and just get people thinking about digital trust. I think it's a really interesting philosophical problem as much as it is a technical problem. Yeah, and I think Ruby kind of sometimes gets a bad rap for not having any academic purposes because we can only build Rails apps with Ruby, which is 100% not true. There's so many things we can do with it. But I think part of the reason why Python got big in the academic world is they had a bunch of tools and libraries to do academic work or machine learning or big data work, all that stuff. And if Ruby just had better tooling, then maybe we would be able to do more of that stuff without it being like, well, Python does it better because they already have the tools written or whatever. That's sort of what Kevin Newton's whole thing with Yarp was. Like, if we improve the parser, the tools we can build on top of the parser, an error-tolerant parser, become better and we can improve our IDEs. And I think the same can be said about the language from a, what are we using Ruby for? What can we do with Ruby comes down to What tools do we have available to us? I mean, we can write anything, but if we lower the barrier of entry, we can build stuff on top of that. 
some of that is, I think, driven by there's definitely a bootstrap mentality in the Rails SaaS world. And there's a lot of great small businesses running off of relatively small businesses. Some are larger than others compared to the global 100,000 person behemoth that I work for currently. Pretty much every other company in the Ruby and Rails world is relatively small. And so there's that sort of bootstrap mentality. And I think where some of that pragmatism comes from. But I do think it's really important to advocate for making Ruby worthwhile for enterprise usage. I think some people feel that that might make Ruby more like Java, (laughs) some of these ickier languages that we don't like to deal with. But I disagree. I mean, I think that there are a lot of big companies who don't realize how efficient a team can be if they're building something in Ruby and if it's a web app, Rails. There's a lot that my small team has been able to do and with a really limited resources with trying to build as much API stuff on Ruby. Yeah, it's amazing how f- much faster your team can go when the amount of work it takes to get an idea from your head into code, into your editor, is easier. Ideas are fleeting. If we can't get them out fast enough, they have a, this tendency to run away, disappear, or we get distracted by something. So like, when you have a language like Ruby that makes it so easy to get something down on paper, that's a huge advantage, especially for a f- small team with limited resources. And yeah, I agree. Companies are missing out when they're like, oh, we have this big company, so you have to use enterprise Java or you have to use this enterprisey thing. Like enable your small teams to move really fast with a language like Ruby and things are going to happen way faster than if you're making everybody statically type every single thing out just to get it out. That's what I like about the gradual typing idea in Ruby is like, I won't use it, at least as I sit today, right now, I'm like, I don't get value or I don't see the value in typing for the hype of work that I'm doing. But I do see value in, if you're a library author, being able to expose these types and things and the ability to gradually type like, hey, this code is done and finished. We can type it now so that we add an extra layer of safety or whatnot. But when you're rapidly developing something, typing gets in the way to a degree. And I feel like I'm going to get a lot of hate for that. So I'm sorry in advance for anybody who disagrees with me. I just mean that I think that ability to like not pigeonhole yourself into, I can't even have a variable here without saying it's this type of variable that goes a long way to why something is speedy. I've yet to find good value for what I work on in typing. But again, I've never worked on some of the larger Ruby apps or Rails apps where I could conceive that might make more sense. But yeah, I think there are a lot of other interesting things at the edge that some people are playing with, but it it is important that Ruby is in the mix. Machine learning is big. A lot of the stuff in sort of the Wasm world, I think is going to be really crucial. I mean, I'm seeing in a lot of the SDKs being, being built for Web3 and for AI, a lot of them using Wasm under the hood or Wasmer and they're building it out the core SDK in Rust, and they're sort of exposing that to other languages. But more and more, I'm seeing commercial SaaS products not building their SDKs in Ruby or providing a Ruby SDK. And that worries me some. And I want Ruby to become hot and fun. And Yeah, of course. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing, giving us some of the tooling to make it easier to interact with some of these protocols coming out and not 
make it feel like, oh, Ruby just, we don't use it because there isn't an easy way to do it. Some things have to be easy or they are just not worth the time where we're at currently. I guess we touched on it slightly, but what's a blocker that you've had involving kind of researching emerging technologies in your day-to-day? Something that holds you back other than Ruby tooling (laughs) needs to get better. So you're solving that by writing your own tools. But like other than that. Well, there's a lot of challenges in navigating a large company as a product team that sort of sits inside a very like service oriented company that is also very pragmatic about our investments and our investments in new products like what we're building. So having to be really efficient about our time and also having to pick up a lot of good skills around agile product management and product delivery. Our team like, sort of got put together to build this product. None of us really came in with really strong software team delivery experience and practice. I used Jira and made tickets and used Cayman boards in previous roles, but really understanding how to write a good user story how to write good acceptance criteria, how to estimate my capacity in a two-week sprint. All these sort of things, I think, are really valuable and maybe sometimes undervalued in the Ruby world. I haven't come across a ton of like really avid agilists in Ruby. And I think that's fine. I'm happy to come out here and try and sell people on it. And I know <laughs> everyone has their own way of working, but I found it to be really great to grow in that area and has really helped, I think, both our team and just me as well as a contributor on the product be more effective. But that was definitely a big blocker early on. Right. I think Agile, in a way, gets a bad rap because it's very easy to do it wrong and it actually becomes a hindrance rather than a help. You're doing Agile wrong. If you're not actually being Agile with your Agile, then it just is a massive pain in the ass. And just gets in the way. But if you're doing it right, it does help accelerate you quite a bit. So I'm breezing through because we spent a lot of time talking about some really (laughs) cool stuff. (laughs) And I want to talk about more cool stuff. And my favorite question is always, what is something cool, new or interesting that you've learned? We've talked about a ton. I mean, your whole job is in a way to discover cool, new and interesting things and see if they're hype or actual viable things. So cheated a little bit. It kind of got rolled into your first question, but got to ask it. What is something cool, new or interesting that you've learned or discovered or built? Yeah. Give me a conference talk. It was a first for me. I came into software development in 2020, beginning of 2020, when everything went online. A lot of the regional conferences went dark and even the, even some of the national conferences went online, but I, I couldn't really afford to travel or my first software job was not willing to make the investment for me to go to those conferences. And so I spent a lot of my time early on in my software development career, listening to the podcasts, following all the Twitter heroes on Twitter and all the other platforms. And that was sort of how I gained knowledge and read their blog posts. And I never really had the opportunity to even go to a conference up until the Blue Ridge Ruby conference, what, a few weeks ago. And I'd been living in the Asheville area for a couple of years, three years, and found a couple of Ruby people in the area in Greenville. And I saw them come back from a conference and and Jeremy tweeted, hey, thinking about doing a Nashville conference. And I DM'd him immediately, say, hey, you should definitely do this. Would love to volunteer, be involved 
however I can. And so I was just happy to come and meet people. And my plan was just to be a volunteer and help support the conference operationally. And then there was the call for proposals. And I just sort of thought like, hey, I get to throw something out there just to try something new. And it was a lot of fun for me to work on a talk and present in front of people and feel somewhat validated that I'm not a poser (laughs) pretending to be a Ruby developer and that I have some interesting thoughts that people were both really like respectful of and were really kind and asked questions about and just felt very validating. So as someone, and I still consider myself an early career developer. I've only been doing this for not even four years now. And I think for anyone who's coming in from like the sort of boot camp model, like I did, there are a lot of these cool emerging technologies you can jump in on. It. You don't have to be a computer science, hardo, like algorithm, data science person to go and learn and understand these things. You can jump in like me and go read documentation and just have something that's sort of yours. Like I've loved having some of this stuff be a little bit my niche. And that's kind of fun. So yeah, it was a really cool experience doing my first conference talk. Highly recommend it. Maybe someone will ask you to be on a podcast too, if you're listening. Also, yeah. I'll throw out a, any other Ruby podcast people who might be listening, feel free to reach out. I'll let them all know. So oh, perfect. I, I talked to a lot of internal, them. Your internal. Yeah, platform. our little podcaster pals group. That was very good first talk. It was ballsy first off to like go out and kind of talk about something that I think there was a Web3 track at RailsConf and then people like blew up that we were having it. And I was kind of on like, I don't really care. So I'm just going to skip those talks. But like is something that everyone's talking about. We should at least hear stuff about it. And I knew it wasn't all hype and buzzword that there is some value in the things that are going on. It's just someone's trying to make money on it. So yeah, it gets a bad rap. So like, yeah, your talk was great because it had that clickbait of like, oh boy, here we go. It's going to be Web3. Is this going to be actual technology or is it going to be like, buy my crypto going? And it was absolutely technical, not like overly technical where I was like lost, but it gave a good description of why there is some stuff coming out of this space that we should spend time looking at investing brain power in. So I think you did a great job, especially for your first talk. I hope you give more talks at more conferences, especially now that we went from no conferences during COVID to only the big ones came back right off the bat. And now it's already the regionals are coming back, which I'm so excited, but I'm rapidly realizing, oh shit, I'm going to need to schedule these a little better because I can't do all of them. And that's a problem. (laughs) And we already have three conferences in October all on the same day. Pick what country you want to go to. And there's a conference potentially going on in October. Go us, which is kind of a good problem to have. But yeah, it's going to require thought now. What's your next conference of choice? The next one that I have a ticket in hand for is RubyConf out in San Diego. Excited for that. I've never been to San Diego. So that's also a motivator. I guess by the time this comes out, this will be announced so I can say it. But I'm speaking again at Sin City Ruby in 2024. That was the very first conference I gave a talk at was Sin City Ruby. So pumped to be going back and giving a better version of the first talk that I gave there. And Rails World sold out super quick. So there are potentially ways to secure a ticket through folks that I know. So I might be able to pull that off, but 
I'll probably know by the time this episode goes out whether or not that's happening, but that's a big maybe. That is going to have to be a lot of stars align in order for that to happen, but that would be super cool too because Amsterdam, if we're talking about like going to conferences that are in a cool place, Amsterdam, never been, that would be super cool. But yeah, I've got to make space for the next Blue Ridge Ruby because Asheville was an awesome place. Jeremy did such a great job with the pacing. I absolutely loved the two-hour open lunch. I loved the hallway track being built in, and Asheville was just a great place to have a conference. So I cannot wait to go back to that one. Yeah, big shout out on the Blue Ridge Ruby conference. It was a ton of fun. I suspect it will happen again next year. Yeah, I think at the end he was a little fried. So he was like, when everybody's like, you're doing it again, right? And he just had this like deer in the headlight look of like, do you know what I went through to make this happen? But I think now that he's got a handle on what it takes, he knows where he can delegate the work better, what needs his direct involvement and what can be offloaded. And he'll be able to start getting it to be a little less stress for him, but still be the quality that he got out of that. He is got a great eye and a great attention to detail. And it showed through the whole conference. He's a perfectionist for sure. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure is part of the reason why it's so stressful for him. But I think it paid off yeah. pretty well because so good. So listeners, when he announces the Blue Ridge Ruby, do not sleep on those tickets. I'm sure it'll be another small one. You don't want to miss it. It was great. I'm excited. Yeah. Come hang out. Maybe you'll go on a hike with me and Drew. Yeah. Good times. Great hiking out there. So to wrap up, how can folks find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm pretty much at HTCar3 everywhere on all the socials, Twitter, Mastodon, Ruby Social, GitHub. My personal website is HTCar.com. I'm still not sure where some of my open source work on digital identity standards are going to live. So just follow me on any of those socials. I'm sure I'll post about it at some point. But yeah, feel free to reach out or shoot me a message if you just want to learn more and talk about it or tell me if you think it's weird and I'll (laughs) have you talk about that too. I'll include all the ways to get in contact with you in the show notes. Hopefully we get you on some more podcasts to talk about the parts of Web3 that are worth paying attention to and maybe change the narrative around it a smidge. I'll be the Ruby Web3 correspondent happily. We've got a bridge. We've got someone who knows what's up. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on and talk to me and kind of give the listeners your one hour overview of the Web3 world and what's worth paying attention to and going into a little bit of digital identity and helping me to wrap my head a little bit around how that's going to potentially work in the not too distant future. Yeah, Yeah. I really appreciate this time to come talk about it. And maybe I'll do some blog posts that might help clear up some of the more fuzzy bits, but really appreciate you. Give me a chance to get on my podium about it. No, like I said, you did a great job with the talk. It made me really want to bring you on to be able to talk more about it, to get the word out a little bit that like, hey, it's not just this buzzword that we should ignore because some people are using it for scams. Like Mm -hmm. there is real technology behind it and there are some things in there that are of value. So the sooner we start wrapping our heads around it, the less scary it'll be, I think, or I hope. So cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure we'll have you on again as you learn more in your pretty damn cool role of try out new technologies and see what's of value. It's an awesome (laughs) role. So we'll have you on again when you've discovered more cool things to talk about. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, great. So listeners, I will see you in the next one. 